want to have you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. How's everybody doing? Good? It's good to see all your happy faces. Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 22 through 30. Then we'll pray, and then we will go from there. Mark 8, 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he went, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you that it brings hope. It brings faith. Causes us to see you more clearly. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. You would open the eyes of the blind in this room this morning, that we would see and perceive clearly who you are. Lord, help me to communicate in a way that is honoring to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, initially, I was going to go further in the scripture than we went, um, but I'll just say from the get-go, at this point in the book of Mark, once we get here to Peter's confession, we have entered a place where everything changes. Uh, I'll show my age and my generation pretty clearly here, but it's like in the, in the movie The Matrix when uh, Neo takes the pill and he wakes up inside the little pod. Everybody know what I'm talking about? The first time I saw that, Where's Daniel? He's in somewhere. Uh, the first time I saw that, I said, What? How many of you know what I mean? That moment in the movie, before spoilers and YouTube and everything else, when I saw that, I was like, What's happening? Everything from that point forward radically altered. And that's chapter 8. That is the end of what we've just read. From this point forward, there's a, What? in the ministry of Jesus, where he is now acknowledged by Peter on behalf of the whole crew of disciples, the bumbling, fumbling, we don't got enough bread in the boat, Jesus. These disciples, everything changes from this point forward. So I'm just warning you up front, that's why I'm stopping where I'm stopping this morning, and it's going to overlap, today will overlap with next Sunday as we get into Jesus and him 
and the open declaration of being the Messiah. So let's look first, though, at the healing that takes place. This is the only place where you find in the ministry of Jesus what I'm going to call a progressive healing. Because Jesus prays for him and says, it's the only time you find Jesus doing this, says, how's it, how's it look? Well, I can kind of see it looks like trees are walking around. And then he goes, okay. And then he lays hands on him again. And then he can see clearly. There's about nine different verbs in Greek for the word sight in this passage. We only really use one. But it's really trying to describe this guy could really see. And it's really trying to get across vision. Can you see? So let's let's look at it uh, uh, just, just quickly. So one, this guy is very similar, we talked about this last week, the parallels between these chapters and how Mark keeps paralleling these stories, uh, these healings and then confrontations with Pharisees and then lessons that Jesus is trying to teach. This, it's, that's the way Mark is outlining these stories in the life of Jesus. And so in chapter 7, we had the deaf-mute that was healed, taken aside privately, which was also a little different. And then the healing took place. Here, it is a blind man that Jesus does the same type of thing. You, you see where he says uh, in verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He takes him away from the crowd again, which is not the way he always did it or normally did it. A lot of what, a lot of what Jesus did was in front of a crowd of people. So here, though, and with the blind, the blind guy here and the deaf guy in chapter 7, uh, Jesus is taking him aside privately. This one is definitely different because, well, he's doing the weird thing again where he spits. He spits right in his eyes. So I addressed this the last time. I'll address it this time. We don't have a cultural reference for this. We don't have any reference for this. It's just what we would call weird. There isn't any other way to look at this than, than to say, in our world, what, what is Jesus doing? And we can speculate, and a lot of read a lot of different commentaries, and that the idea in the first century that spit had something to do with the properties of the person. It's very, very possible because Jesus is in a Gentile region that he's trying non-verbally to communicate to this person, you can trust me, I know what I'm doing, I, I am, I, I'm, you're, you're about to be healed. We, I don't know, I'm just saying that is a speculative answer as to why he did it, but that is why he did it, because it doesn't say why he did it, it just says that he did it. Sometimes God doesn't tell us why. Uh, and that corresponds nicely to our lives because there's lots of things that God brings to pass in our lives that we will never, ever, ever get the answer, why? But if I've ever talked to any Christian struggling, the question that they struggle with is, why? Because we want explanations. And sometimes the explanation is, trust the king of the universe to do what is right to do what is just, and do what is needed in the moment that it's needed. So, 
that's that's something that that I just I take out of out of something like this. But what's really what's really interesting uh, is if the guy describes after the initial healing, uh, the initial prayer where Jesus spits in his eyes, lays his hands on him, and asks, and again, this is the only place he does this, do you see anything? The guy responds with, I see people, but they look like trees. This tells us that this guy was not born blind. He was blind either by virtue of an injury or a disease. He, he had progressively become blind, but he wasn't always blind because he knows what trees look like. So if, if he didn't know what trees look like, he wouldn't have said it. So he has an idea of what a, a tree looks like and what people look like, and, but he can't see clearly. Now the question has to be asked, is Jesus just having an off day? I know you're laughing and that's appropriate. No, Jesus does not have bad days. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead after waiting four days, something to that effect. Jesus is walking on water. Just last chapter, Jesus is distributing bread to 4,000 people out of, out of just, uh, what was it, 12 loaves last week? Jesus is not having a bad day. Jesus isn't struggling to heal people. This is the only place this happens. Again, we're not given a clear explanation, but I hope that I can give what I think is happening. Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. That actually means, the way we would describe it, is he had LASIK surgery spiritually, and he went from blindness to being able to see all the way out and clearly perceive everything. His vision was perfect. And Jesus sends him back home. So Jesus had pulled him aside privately, sends him back home, says, don't even enter the village. Because he knows that if he goes back through and now he can see, there's going to be more of an uproar and Jesus is in this spot, in this moment, he is not looking for that. He wants the guy, he's performed the miracle, he wants the guy to go back home. And this is going to be similar a little bit later where Jesus tells the disciples not to say anything. And we'll, We've talked about that before, we'll talk about it again. What, what's going on here again in Mark in the last chapter, he's giving us the, the deaf and the mute healing. And now in this chapter, he's giving us a blind person uh, in healing. So I want us to look at a couple, again, messianic passages from the Old Testament that the Jewish community would have had in their mind when they saw this. So can we do, uh, Daryl, can we do Mark, excuse me, can we do uh, Psalm 146.8? The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Nobody else was opening blind eyes. 
And you you've got to you've just you've got to put yourself in this position to see someone that just a little bit ago he had healed a deaf mute, and now there's somebody who can't see, and now they can. In the framework of a people that grow up with the messianic promises and the promises of who God is, there's an echo in the back of their mind that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. You see the connection that God is making through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Isaiah 29. Um, I really like our big screen. Isaiah 29, verse uh, 18. Since my eyes are in need of some help. This is another messianic prophecy. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And let's go to what we looked at last week, which is Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. So Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Another. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. What's the next verse say? Six, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Did Jesus do any of that in his ministry? We know that he did. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Mark is making it clear as he highlights the different miracles in the ministry of Jesus that Jesus wasn't just doing little tiny things. Jesus was doing impossible things that cannot be done any other way. No other explanation for what's happening. And he was doing it in a way that coincides with what the Jewish expectation would have been for the Messiah. Unfortunately, that is not the only expectation they had because other messianic prophecies describe the final end of what the Messiah will do, which is when Jesus is coming back the second time and when he restores everything the way it's supposed to be. We call it the second coming of Christ, the end of everything. Anybody ever paid attention to the book of Revelation? Anybody ever been interested in that sort of thing? So what, what the Jews were doing as they were reading that literature in the Old Testament and those prophetic statements, and they were squishing them all together and saying, it's all going to happen simultaneously. So what we're looking for is a king, a conqueror, a warrior on a horse with a sword, leading an army in the battle to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as the king kingdom on the earth. And that's what they were looking for. And Jesus was not there in his first moment, the kingdom of God being brought into the world. Jesus was not there to do that, which is probably why he says things like, don't even go to the village, and why he tells Peter and the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Yet. We should put that in parentheses. Yet. So Jesus does this miracle, coincides with messianic prophecy. I think that's all. This isn't some deep revelation, I hope. This is, this is just 
making it make sense what Mark is trying to get across. But what's interesting is, is the very next segment of Scripture starting in verse 27 and how Mark leads us to the very next moment. And Jesus went on. So this miracle happens. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. That was named after uh, Caesar and Philip. And it was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So they're, they're up, up in that region. And as they're headed there, Jesus says, who do, who do people say that I am? Now, when I was in youth group, this was something all the, this was a great youth group passage uh, to encourage teenagers to answer this question. But it's, it's really not just good for teenagers. It, it's, it is the question. Who do people say that I am? For the disciples walking up the road, Jesus is reversing roles sort of as the rabbi because they're always asking him questions and he asks them, in essence, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? Now, they're around, even though they're with Jesus, they hear what's being said about who he is and they just tell him what people are saying. There was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, but in essence what they're saying is, this is what the comment section is saying about you, Jesus. This is what the people are saying. Some people believe you're John the Baptist because remember, he's been murdered at this point. And they think he's like, just he's John the Baptist again, like a reincarnation of some sort. And others believe that he was Elijah because, because Elijah is to come. He's coming back. So some people think that's who you are and some people think that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks the most important question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. This is really interesting because Matthew gives us a lot more than Mark does. But remember, who is helping Mark to write this book? Do you remember we've talked about this? Peter. Peter is the guy that's helping Mark in him is in his writing of this, this book. And it's almost like that's that's all that they put in there. Peter, it's almost like he's just minim it's a minimalist expression. Just the basic. The straightforward answer when asked Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ means the anointed one. It means the one anointed or empowered by God who has been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament to do all those things we just read about and who will end everything and all oppression and all tears will be dried up and everything will be set right and there will be justice and God will reign supreme. All of that is going to be what the Christ does. And Peter says, you are the Christ. 
Let's go to Matthew so we can get the fuller picture of this moment. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13 is where we'll start. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Same thing. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Same answer. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Same question. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. And that's where Mark stopped. But look at the rest of what happens here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own, Peter. You didn't come to this conclusion because you are super smart. You didn't come to this conclusion because you are super spiritual. In fact, Peter, so far the written account of your life demonstrates the opposite of that. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's revealed it. He's opened your eyes. You can see it now. Go back to Mark. What I think Mark is trying to do, what the Holy Spirit is doing through this gospel, is showing us, so let's remember what we did last week. Remember what they were having an issue with last week. Jesus feet, Jesus heals the deaf man, then he preaches and there's, he has compassion on the crowd. He does the miracle of feeding the 4,000. They get in the boat and they forget the bread as per usual. They get in the boat, they're, they're like, oh gosh, we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Remember this was last week? And then Jesus goes on uh, because the disciples say, he's telling us this because we forgot the bread. Jesus is like, do you not yet perceive or understand? You remember, this is last week's sermon. You don't get it. You don't see it. It's not clear. And then immediately we go into the story of the blind guy. So we went from Jesus, and last week we really emphasized Jesus is the bread of life. He is the source of of all life, and he's right there in the boat with them. The danger is the Pharisees and the legalism and the, and the following after the natural. That is, that's the danger. Don't do what they do. And yet they can't see it, and they're with him all the time. And he's like, you still don't understand. And then we go to the blind man, and now we have the only example of a progressive healing where Jesus 
spits in the guy's eye and steps back and says, do you see yet? No, but kind of. I kind of see. It looks like trees. And then Jesus comes back and lays his hands on him. Do you see now? The only time he does it. And then Jesus, Mark wants us to see that Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And now, different than in the boat, which was just a couple verses back, Peter says, I clearly see who you are. You are the Christ. Do you see the point that I'm making? The point that I'm making and the point I think that Mark is making is that it can be in the life of people a progressive understanding of who God is. In other words, people don't always get it all at once. But it's God who opens the eyes. To me, what I believe we should get out of this is a lot of hope when we are dealing with people who don't get it. Do you have anybody that you know that doesn't get it? Raise your hand. They just... They don't understand why you are the way that you are, that you believe. How can you believe in the face of this evidence? How can you believe when we've made so many advancements? How can you believe? Nobody's given me an answer on the dinosaurs yet. How can you believe? You know what I'm talking about, right? When I look at this and I see the only progressive miracle in Jesus' ministry sandwiched in between the disciples saying, He's talking to us because we don't have bread. Jesus like, that's not what I'm talking about. You don't see it yet. And then we have the miracle where he lays hands on him, spits in his eye. Do you see? Nope, but I kind of see. And he comes back. To me, this is, this is a way for Mark to say, listen, keep at it. Keep at it. Keep knocking on the door, keep seeking, keep praying, keep preaching the gospel. It, it's, you could take it in two different ways. I, I can look at it as when I'm seeking God for an answer, I, I don't just quit. I, I seek Him. If God makes it abundantly clear that whatever I'm seeking Him for, He will lead, He does something in our hearts. He changes the trajectory of what we're trying to do. Because if, if I'm trying to do something that I shouldn't be doing, and I think God's wanting me to do it, if I pray and seek Him, He will lead me away from it. How? He makes it clear. How? You just have to keep seeking Him to figure it out. Because there isn't some... If you sit around and wait for a voice to come talk to you, you'll get one. Don't know how well it will work out for you if you wait for subjective voices. I'm not saying God doesn't talk. I think that He does. I just don't think there's any confusion when He talks. If God says something to you, you it, there isn't any confusion. There isn't any confusion. Now, is there confusion over whether or not I'm making a right decision? All the time. At least three times on Sunday. All the time there's confusion over what I'm doing. So I have to seek and submit my life to the Lord. And these kind of passages tell me that I'm not always going to see everything 
clearly. But what I should be doing is staying close to the Messiah who opens blind eyes. Seek, knock, ask. That's what Jesus tells us to do in prayer. But also it tells me something that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. I planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos, this other teacher, he came along and preached the gospel to you, and that was like watering the seed. And then God gave the increase. God caused the seed to grow. God caused that person to see. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Watered, planted. God is the one who's shown it to you. So what Mark is doing is he's telling us, don't give up on people. Don't give up on hard-hearted, obstinate people. They may see like trees unclearly or not at all. But we should go back to them in love. We should go back to them. We should go back to the Lord in prayer. We should not give up on people. We should preach the gospel. Truth in love. Now, this is not a sermon where I'm trying to give you a license to get your gospel ball bat out and tee some people up that annoy you, take their heads off for the satisfaction of being right. That is not what I'm trying to describe. Because that would put you more in line with the guys in chapter 7 called the Pharisees. That like the idea of them being right and you being wrong. In fact, it's actually more enjoyable that you're wrong. I like you being wrong. I like me being right. I have no care whatsoever about you actually coming to a knowledge of the truth. I just like the idea of me being right and you being wrong. That is clearly not the attitude of a Christian. That is not the way that we are supposed to approach the world. And when we recognize that about ourselves, we should go to the Lord and say, Help. I'm a jerk. I need some help. Listen, I pray this all the time. Because there's lots of times I, I think, man, a really good thing you could say to come back to that is this. And then I step back and think, why do I want to have a comeback? Do I, do I want them to come to the knowledge of the truth? Or am I just hoping to prove that I'm right and they're wrong? You see the difference? I'm right and you're wrong. You see that? That's a Brian Regan joke. Okay. Jesus, when he looks at them and asks them this question, this moment in the ministry of Jesus was very purposeful. He knows that the Father has opened the eyes of Peter and the disciples. He knows that they now recognize who he is truly. And when Peter answers that, and you saw it in Matthew, and he tells him, blessed are you. He gives him a benediction. Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't show it to you. My Father in heaven has shown this to you. But what's really weird is when we get to next week, 
how immediately it's clear that even though they know, they don't know all the way. Because immediately Jesus is about to call Peter, get behind me, Satan. Immediately. The, the, very, the very next thing that we're getting into. The hope, again, as always, is, is that we can never look at where we are in our walk with God and say, man, I, I don't know what else there is to know. I've read through the Bible 20 times. I mean, I would, would, I just go to church now because, you know, I just want to hear if the preacher's got anything new to say. I've actually had people tell me that. You want to bang your head off of a... It's like a fourth grader saying, well, I, I've got multiplication down. I have no idea why you guys think calculus is an issue. And you'd say, uh, have you ever tried to do calculus? I don't need to. Got these multiplication tables over here. That's kind of what you sound, you, we sound like immature, silly people. There is never a place where a Christian will ever say, I have got it, I have got this down. The moment you say something like that, or nobody is going to say it, right? There's a very small percentage of the population that will tell the pastor, I just come to hear if you've got anything new to say. Very, very small percentage. But there's a larger percentage out here, here behind the pulpit and watching online. There's a larger percentage of us who feel that feeling. That, I kind of know what's up. Had some prayers answered. Seen God come through. I mean... I'm smarter than this guy. And that's, it's the human condition to try to find equilibrium, also known as laziness, to just stagnate in a little area of comfort in our walk with God. That's what we like. We like just this comfortable, no surprises, no challenges, no hard scriptures, no hard situations, just everything functioning smoothly all the time. And I will, I will viciously protect my life to stay right here as much as I possibly can. This scripture tells me that you can have supernatural revelation from the Father. And then the very next page, the very next verses, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> It, it tells us that we are supposed to be growing in our walk with God. And it tells us that with humility, you are never, ever, ever going to get to the bottom and to the depths of who He is. You are never. In fact, one million years from now, I believe several hymn writers have attempted to express this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why did he write those lyrics? Because he was recognizing that you can't get to the bottom of his grace and his mercy and his redemption, and his love and his justice and his goodness. You can't get to the bottom of it. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. You are going to lovingly drown in an ocean of His goodness throughout all of eternity. There's never get, there's no bottom. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be unimaginable. 
So, so don't ever say, I got it. I know what's up. Because we don't. And don't ever say, well, I tried. I shared the gospel with them in 2007. That, don't do that either. We don't know how God might use us as being a planter of seed or a waterer of seed. And it does take some pressure off to say, you're not the person that reaches into the heart of somebody and causes that seed to grow. You leave all of that up to the work of the Holy Spirit. We plant and we water and we live our lives in the knowledge and the grace that God's given us for today, and we show the world around us not our perfection, but that we are followers of Christ, seeking Him, looking to Him every single day. That is what we do with our lives. Now, like I said, from this point forward, Mark chapter 8, once we get in, so next Sunday sermon, I'm gonna, it is going to overlap, like I said. It totally changes. The whole mood changes from this point forward for the rest of the book. Um, and it's we're right at the halfway point. So the focus is going to shift more dramatically to who Jesus is as the Messiah now that we've got it established through the disciples that they know who he is. And then we immediately are going to establish that they don't know everything. So it's going to be fantastic. But this is where I'm going to stop today. I'm not going to keep us moving. We're going to stop here. I would like to go through the rest of the verses, but I'm resisting the urge. So let's all stand up. We're going to be dismissed. These weird 30-minute sermons, don't, don't, don't get used to them all the time, okay? I remember being on staff at a church, uh, the church I grew up in, and we did this Sunday night survey. We went out into the community and asked um, what people were looking for in a church, which I, we will never do that. Uh, but it was the 90s. It was a cool thing to do. So we went around, and I remember this one guy. <clears throat> he was getting an ice cream cone or a snow cone or something. Um, and we were asking, and so these people pull up. You just put yourself in his shoes. A bunch of overzealous teenager people like me, and I would have definitely been overzealous. Uh, what are you looking for in a church? And it's the funniest answer I think ever, and I was not expecting it. When the preacher says you get out at noon... You get out at noon. And then he turned around and went back to his ice cream cone. So anyway, I know there's people like that out there. Not in this congregation. So anyway, don't get used to, uh, to that. Anyway, let's just thought I'd share a fun story with you. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you that it is. It builds us up, sets us free. It's a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. It's like a fire in our bones. It's food. It's meat. It's bread. For some of us, it's milk. Lord, you distribute that among us as only you can do. And Lord, we ask that you would do that through this message today. You would meet us where we are. 
you would help us this week to grow, that we would not be guilty of thinking we've arrived, and we would not be guilty of giving up on people too quick. Lord, that we would be found in all of you, worshiping you, loving you, and knowing you. Lord, I pray this week we would shine like a light at work, that we would diffuse the fragrance of your knowledge in every place that we go, that our speech would be with grace and seasoned with salt, that we would know how we ought to answer each one. God, make us instruments of your testimony, of your gospel, of your goodness and your glory. Lord, we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.